a makeshift harness that offers hope of survival. They were trapped like rats in a hole. A surfboard with the mark of a vicious predator. She looked at the water and it was a bloody red plume. And a sinister contraption behind an explosive heist. That device was destined to detonate. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. One hundred miles west of Manhattan is the seaside retreat of Greenport, New York. This tiny hamlet is home to an institution that doesn't cater to vacationers, but to those with an interest in psychic phenomena. This is the Parapsychology Foundation. Its shelves are stocked with more than ten thousand titles that cover topics ranging from ghosts to poltergeists, psychic spies to spiritualism. But Foundation President Lizette Coley believes that one of the most intriguing items isn't a book at all, but a simple piece of jewelry. It's about one and a half inches wide. It's gold. It's round, and it's engraved with the letters E J G. This artifact bore witness to an extraordinary account of a high-flying tragedy told from beyond the grave. So who wore this bracelet, and could she really communicate with the dead? Cardington, England, October fourth, nineteen thirty. The British airship R one hundred one is preparing for a journey to India. The R one hundred one is designed to be a floating palace of the air to be able to connect the British Empire. Piloted by an experienced airman named H. Carmichael Irwin. The vessel's passengers include foreign dignitaries and wealthy members of the public, and at 6:36 p.m., it rises into the gray skies. But eight hours into the flight, the R-101 encounters a violent storm. The weather was getting much worse. She was being buffeted by gale force winds. Then, a little after 2 a.m. on October 5th, the helium-filled balloon crashes into the French countryside. And erupts into a giant ball of flame. The crash killed 48 people out of the 54 on board, including the pilot. Officials flock to the crash site, and an investigation is launched. As news of the tragedy spreads, some speculate the crash was the result of error on the part of the pilot, H. Carmichael Irwin. But in the coming days, a very different story emerges. October 7, 1930, London. 37-year-old Eileen Garrett is hosting a séance to channel the spirit of one of England's most beloved authors and the creator of Sherlock Holmes, the recently deceased Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In attendance is a journalist named Ian Coster. This journalist thought it would be wonderful to find out right from the horse's mouth what it was like on the other side of the veil. Wearing this bracelet, now in the collection of the Parapsychology Foundation. Garrett's hands begin to shake, and she slips into a trance. 
she would essentially lose consciousness and she would channel the spirit entities who would talk through her. Slowly, a deep voice emanates from her body. But it seems that it's not the spirit of the famous writer at all, but a different soul entirely. A voice started coming through, spelling its name, I-R-W-I-N. Anticipating the voice of Conan Doyle, the assembled crowd is perplexed by the presence of Irwin. Then Garrett rattles off a series of mysterious details as fast as the reporter can write. Irwin was saying that the hydraulics were wrong, there was no lift, the gas mixture was incorrect, we should have never left. As Garrett proceeds, Coster realizes that this could be the spirit of H. Carmichael Irwin, the deceased pilot of the R-101. Days later, Ian Coster publishes his story. He got quite a big reaction because, of course, the public was eating up all details about the crash of the R-101. News of Garrett's alleged contact with the pilot reaches Major Oliver Villiers, the chief intelligence officer of the Air Ministry. Wary of Garrett's claim, Villiers asks her if she can contact the pilot once more. Garrett agrees. And in early 1931, Villiers joins the controversial medium for a seance. For 30 minutes, nothing of interest transpires, and he's about ready to pack up and go. But then something happens that captures Villiers' attention. He suddenly heard a faint voice that he recognized to be Irwin the pilot. Villiers asked him if he had anybody else with him. And Irwin mentioned, oh yes, I have the rest of the crew with me. And it seems that Irwin and his crew are trying to deliver a particular message. Irwin was desperate to get the word out that the ship was not airworthy and that it had been forced to take off despite the concerns of himself and his fellow officers. Villiers emerges convinced of Garrett's credibility. In March, the government prepares a report on the causes of the R-101 disaster. Eager to vindicate his fellow airmen, Villiers presents to his superiors notes and transcripts from the seance, now on display at the Parapsychology Foundation. Major Villiers had a meeting with the gentleman who was actually running the court of inquiry. And of course, that gentleman told him that it was not admissible in a court of law because it was coming through the hands of a medium. Yet as the inquiry's report becomes public, nearly all of the government's subsequent findings match the details that emerged from Garrett's seances. That despite the inclement weather, the dignitaries had forced the crew to take off and that structural deficiencies in the airship contributed to the disaster. The report leaves many convinced that Eileen Garrett can, in fact, communicate with the dead. In the end... Garrett's involvement in the case propels her to international fame. And in 1941, she becomes an American citizen and goes on to found the Parapsychology Foundation and continues to channel spirits until her own death. Eileen Garrett passed away September 15, 1970, which was a, a loss for the science of parapsychology and me personally, as she was my maternal grandmother. Today, Lizette Coley carries on her grandmother's legacy, dedicating her life to the Parapsychology Foundation and the library that bears Eileen Garrett's name, where this bracelet, worn by the legendary medium, 
serves as a vivid reminder of the woman who some believe channeled the dead. Nestled in the lush Connecticut River Valley, Amherst, Massachusetts provides a serene backdrop for numerous educational establishments, the most prestigious of which is Amherst College. This verdant campus is home to an institution named after a literary great, the Robert Frost Library. Along with thousands of books and papers, the collection holds some of the scribe's original manuscripts and even artwork in his likeness. But according to head archivist Mike Kelly, one set of volumes here hails not from the ivory tower, but from the ambitious mind of an Amherst College dropout. They're simple brown hardcover paper journals with lined paper inside. You would never think that inside these pages is the germ of an idea that would end up revolutionizing food in America. So who was this unlikely innovator? And what was his groundbreaking invention? 1912, Labrador, Canada. Living amongst the nomadic tribes of this frozen peninsula is a curious young man from Brooklyn, New York, named Clarence Birdseye. The former science student is seeking his fortune as a fur trader. At the time that Birdseye shows up, it is still a very wild country. It was a place barren of people, but abundant in natural resources. He's really combining his love of biology with this business sense, like how can I turn this wilderness into a profit? As Birdseye adjusts to the harsh Arctic conditions, he documents the experience, including his lackluster diet in his journal. There's a distinct lack of fresh food, and that comes across. Desperate for something that doesn't come from a can, Birdseye carefully observes the local customs. He notices that natives will pull a fish out of the water and it will freeze instantly. And when you eat that fish later, it tastes great. I think the light bulb goes on for him at that point. Birdseye becomes convinced that if he can develop an effective method of rapidly freezing food, especially seafood, he can make a fortune. But in the early 1900s, the American frozen food market seems an unlikely source of riches. Frozen food did exist, but it was not something that had any kind of reputation as decent or wholesome or nutritious food. Refrigerators are only starting to enter American homes, and commercial freezing technology is rudimentary at best. The freezing process is slow and uneven, and when food is thawed, it is spongy and nearly inedible. But Birdseye believes that if he can develop a new machine that would rapidly freeze food at extremely low temperatures, the result would be a delicious product that would win over America. Birdseye returns to the U.S. to put his ideas to the test. And in 1924, he forms the General Seafood Company. But with a wife and four children, he is forced to mortgage his family's home to keep the nascent business afloat. Birdseye has a lot on the line at this point. He has confidence in the science, he has confidence in himself, but he is taking a risk. Three years later, he perfects a machine that flash freezes pre-packaged boxes of haddock fillets and is awarded a patent for his design. Soon, he sinks every dime into building a factory. 
but his challenges are far from over. There is no safety net for him should he fail with his new technologies. Birdseye sets out to convince a skeptical public that his product tastes fresh and delicious. But there's a host of technical challenges to overcome. Grocery stores did not have frozen food sections yet. So his success really depends on also getting grocers to use refrigeration technology. But grocers and housewives are not convinced. By 1929, with boxes of unsold food piling up in his factory, a broke bird's eye seems doomed to fail. So what will it take to rescue his dreams? College dropout Clarence Birdseye has developed a technique for rapid freezing that he hopes will put frozen foods in every kitchen in America. But when he tries to market his ideas, he's met with contempt. So what can Birdseye do to make his frozen dreams become reality? Clarence Birdseye's back is against the wall. But his long years of effort have attracted the attention of food magnate C.W. Post. Executives at his company are convinced that they have the marketing expertise and influence to make the product a success. They make Birdseye an extraordinary offer. Birdseye ends up selling the company and all of its patents to the CW Post company for about $22 million, which is $240 million in today's money. But the newly minted millionaire isn't about to walk away from his dream. He goes to work for CW Post's new frozen food division, which is renamed Birdseye. And now, armed with the resources of a major corporation, Birdseye sets out with renewed vigor to land the product on grocery shelves. Birdseye lines up 10 stores in Springfield, Massachusetts, and he gets them to install the refrigeration technology and sell his product. As the decade wears on, more and more people own refrigerators and freezers. Soon, Americans begin to recognize the economic value of consuming and storing quality frozen food. And that's really the beginning. By 1940, Birdseye Frozen Foods, you know, it's a household name. Birdseye's journals from his hard years on the frozen tundra document the moment when his multi-million dollar dream was born. Here's a guy who goes out into the wilderness and he records everything he sees. And what he turns that into is this fantastic product that changes the lives of millions of people around the world. Today, in the warmth of the Amherst College Special Collections and Archives, visitors can thumb through these historic pages for themselves. Situated in southern Michigan, the leafy town of Marshall plays host to one of the most fantastical displays of illusion, escape, and entertainment in the country, the American Museum of Magic. Its extensive collection contains costumes, apparatuses, and tricks of the trade from the secretive world of magicians. Of the over 2,500 posters that dominate the museum's walls, one stands apart. It's a smaller theatrical poster, what's called a half sheet, and it features a number of lanterns set off in front of a pagoda in the back. According to curator Dennis Laub, this poster was once used to promote the performances of a famous man of magic, the marvelous Chinese conjurer Cheng Ling Su. You would never know by looking at this poster 
the secrets that lie behind it. So who was this mysterious magician? And what brought his successful career to a sensational and tragic end? April 16, 1900, London. Magician Chung Ling Su debuts his exotic brand of Chinese magic at the Alhambra Theatre in Leicester Square. It's unlike anything Western audiences have seen before. This was a period of time when the West was becoming fascinated with everything from the Orient. Chung Ling Su's wife, Sui Sin, acts as his assistant. And since the magician apparently speaks no English, a crew member performs the role of master of ceremonies. The crown jewel of Chung Ling Su's fantastical show is a stunning trick known as the bullet catch. For this death-defying stunt, Su stands on stage in front of a two-person firing squad, brandishing a porcelain plate as a shield. Audience members are invited to examine the guns and two marked bullets. These would be loaded into muskets, and the two assistants would fire at Chung Ling Su. Miraculously, Su catches the bullets on the plate. It's a breathtaking feat. It always had an element not only of mystery, but of danger, real danger. Soon, Chung Ling Su is filling theaters with rapt audiences. And posters, like this one, at the American Museum of Magic, plaster the town. For almost two decades, Chung Ling Su performs the bullet catch with remarkable success. Until one fateful night. March 23rd, 1918. Wood Green Empire Theatre, London. Towards the end of Chung Ling Su's second performance of the evening, an ominous marching tune signals the start of the bullet catch trick. But this time, when the rifles are fired, something goes terribly wrong. The plate fell to the floor. Chung Ling Su slumps to the ground. Then, in perfect English, the wounded conjurer calls out. Oh my God, something's happened. Lower the curtain. The magician's assistants rush to his aid. But just hours later, Chung Ling Su is pronounced dead, felled by a bullet fired during his carefully orchestrated act. As the confounding details of the tragedy spread, some are left wondering why the silent Chinese conjurer's last words were spoken in English. Investigators delve into the tragic case and soon discover that the victim wasn't who he appeared to be at all. Chung Ling Su was really a New Yorker by the name of William Robinson. He'd been carrying on this elaborate masquerade for some 18 years. A former magician's assistant, William Robinson determined that performing as a Chinese man would take advantage of the current fascination with the Far East and manage a crippling fear, stage fright. He reasoned that as a non-English speaking performer, he wouldn't have to utter a single word. His wife, Dot, would perform as his assistant, Sui Sin. It was a brazen idea, but it worked. The mass of the British public did not know he wasn't Chinese. But investigators learn that's not the only secret the slain magician kept hidden. He's married to Dot, but he's really living in a, with another woman in another household uh, outside of London on his off time. Investigators begin to wonder... Could Robinson's shunned wife have sabotaged his signature trick and orchestrated his murder? Hold up. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. March 1918, London. Magician William Robinson, a.k.a. Chung Ling Su, dies when his spectacular bullet catch trick goes terribly awry. When investigators discover that he's been cheating on his wife, suspicion falls on Dot Robinson. Did she sabotage his signature trick as an act of revenge? Dot vehemently denies any involvement in her husband's show-stopping end and claims to have never touched the weapons. Chung Ling Su always prepared the guns himself because he wanted to make sure that it was done properly. He didn't want carelessness from some assistant to cause any sort of injury. So investigators call on firearms expert Robert Churchill to determine how the trick worked and why it went awry. Through careful examination of the weapons, he uncovers the magician's secret. The guns were rigged. Instead of a trigger strike igniting the gunpowder and propelling the bullet in the main barrel, the chamber was blocked and the spark was redirected to a lower chamber that had been loaded before the show. The charge that actually fired would be a blank charge with no bullet in it. With sleight of hand, Robinson would release two bullets with identical markings to those in the gun onto the porcelain dinnerware. So what went wrong the fateful night of Robinson's death? Churchill finds that the gunpowder from the main barrel had worked its way through the device that had previously blocked it from the igniting spark, thus creating a thin fuse line to the live round. So a bullet and a charge that was never, ever intended to be fired actually fired and caused his death. Just turns out to be a straightforward accident. Nearly a century after the spectacular demise of the man known as Chung Ling Su, this poster at the American Museum of Magic serves as a reminder of one of history's greatest magicians, a man who lived and died under his own illusions. The Southern California town of Oceanside is a surfing mecca with six miles of coastline providing the ideal conditions for anyone looking to catch a wave. So it's no surprise that it's here that travelers can find an institution dedicated to the history and culture of this popular sport, the California Surf Museum. Its collection includes wooden surfboards from the early 1900s to today's foam and fiberglass models. But according to author Tim O'Shai, there's one legendary board that was almost lost at sea forever. It's red and blue and clear on the bottom. It's five feet, nine inches tall. It's about 18 inches wide and two inches thick. And while it was once no different from any other, this board bears the striking evidence of a violent and horrific encounter. What's really remarkable about this artifact is what's missing. A large chunk has been taken from the side. What does this jagged edge reveal about a terrifying attack by a deadly oceanic predator? 
October 31st, 2003, Kauai, Hawaii. Teenage surfing star Bethany Hamilton goes out for a morning surf near Tunnels Beach, a stretch of coast known for its stunning beauty. On this morning, the water was particularly calm, and Bethany was out paddling in this deep blue water. The, the sun was beating down on her back, and she was just waiting for the next wave. But at 7.30 a.m., the dreamlike idol transforms into a horrific nightmare. Something burst out of the water. It clamped down on her left arm. This was a lightning-fast attack. It was over in a matter of seconds. And as suddenly as it lunged from the water, the creature releases its death grip and glides away. It's only then that Bethany realizes she's been attacked by a shark. She looked at the water and it was a bloody red plume. Her left arm was gone. The commotion in the water attracts the attention of surfer Hoyt Blanchard, who races out to save her. Fearing the bloodthirsty killing machine could still be circling, he knows that he can't get Bethany back to shore fast enough. By the time they make it to safe ground, Bethany is on the verge of death, and Hoyt makes a critical decision. Hoyt took a surf leash and wrapped it around what remained of her left arm, and that was a life-saving move. Hoyt's quick thinking buys her enough time to be rushed to nearby Wilcox Memorial Hospital. By the time Bethany got to the hospital, she had lost between 50 and 60% of her blood, but the doctors ultimately were able to save her. The next day, as Bethany recovers, she describes the shark that took her arm and a large section of her surfboard. Bethany couldn't remember much about the attack, but she did see enough of the shark to guess that it was about 14 or 15 feet long, and she was able to identify one distinguishing characteristic. It had a ragged dorsal fin. The remarkable story of Bethany Hamilton's brush with death spreads like wildfire. And soon, beachgoers at popular surf spots spy a terrifying sight. In the days after the attack, people beaches all around the island started reporting sightings of a shark with a ragged dorsal fin. People panicked. Tourists stayed far away. Surfers got out of the water. Beaches were closed. In the midst of this hysteria, a legendary surfer and local fisherman named Billy Hamilton, who has no relation to Bethany, takes up the cause of stopping this beast. Billy Hamilton was determined to catch this shark. He wanted to make sure that nobody else was attacked. Billy enlists the help of his friend, Ralph Young, and the two embark on a mission to hunt down and kill the animal. A few days later, the men return with a massive prize, a 14-foot tiger shark weighing over 1,500 pounds with dusky striped skin and a ragged dorsal fin. Is this the shark that attacked Bethany Hamilton? It's 2003 in Hawaii, when a massive shark bears down on 13-year-old surfer Bethany Hamilton. She loses her left arm, but survives the harrowing ordeal. Now, weeks later, two fishermen catch a beast that bears a striking resemblance to the girl's attacker. Is this the shark that savaged Bethany Hamilton? To see if they can find the gruesome evidence of the shark's attack, Billy and Ralph butcher the mighty beast. They cut open the stomach, hoping to find the chunk of the surfboard. They find nothing. 
sharks often regurgitate indigestible material. So if this shark was the attacker, it may have purged what its body could not break down. But Hamilton and Young realize there's one tool left to identify the shark. Bethany's surfboard, now on display at the California Surf Museum. Billy and Ralph reason that if they have caught the beast that attacked Bethany, its jaw and teeth should match the missing section of the board perfectly. So this jawbone, also part of the collection at the California Surf Museum, is removed from the shark's body. They cut out the jaw of the shark and matched it up to the gap on the surfboard. It was a near-perfect fit. In fact, their test reveals a fit to within two millionths of an inch. They were completely convinced that they had captured the shark that attacked Bethany Hamilton. And as further confirmation, local shark sightings drop off in the wake of this incredible capture. In the weeks after the attack, Bethany Hamilton quickly recovers from the loss of her arm and takes to the water again. And in 2005, just one year after her brutal attack, she places first at a national surfing championship. Today, her ravaged surfboard is on display at the California Surf Museum, standing as a stark reminder of a ferocious beast, a terrifying encounter, and one girl's courageous tale of survival against the odds. Founded in 1791, Washington, D.C. is home to some of the nation's most illustrious cultural establishments, including the Smithsonian Institution and the Library of Congress. But it's also home to one museum that sheds light on the cold, hard facts of a different facet of the American story. The National Museum of Crime and Punishment. The collection holds evidence from infamous criminal cases, including the very car driven by serial killer Ted Bundy, Unabomber Ted Kaczynski's tools, and handcuffs which once bound the wrists of Jeffrey Dahmer. But there's one item here that author and retired FBI agent Jerry Clark knows deserves just as much attention. This device is about 18 inches in diameter. It's gray, and it was made of metal. This bizarre-looking artifact signifies one of the most brazen heists in U.S. history, one that Clark, as the lead investigator on the case, will never forget. It's hard to believe that this actually happened. So what explosive chain of events did this contraption set off? August 28, 2003, Erie, Pennsylvania. At 2.27 p.m., a 46-year-old pizza delivery man named Brian Wells enters a bank. And right away, his strange appearance attracts the attention of tellers. Brian Wells had something under his shirt that was very bulky. Wells hands a teller a note that demands she hand over $250,000 and includes a powerful incentive to comply. The note advises the teller that Mr. Wells has a bomb around his neck and that he had 55 minutes to complete his task before the device would detonate. This bomb, a replica of which is on display at the Museum of Crime and Punishment, is locked to Wells' neck. And according to the note, if the teller doesn't cooperate, the device will explode. The bank teller provided Mr. Wells just over $8,000. 
Satisfied that this is as much as the teller can access, Wells promptly exits the bank. But he doesn't get far. After witnesses call 911, police soon stop Wells in his car in a nearby parking lot. And hot on their heels are the local media. As his plight unfolds on live television, Wells explains to law enforcement officers how he came to be wearing a bomb. Mr. Wells advised that on his last delivery, he was accosted by an individual, and that individual forced him to wear this collar device to rob the bank. He said they pulled the key out, they started a timer, and I heard it start ticking. A desperate Wells frantically tells police that he needs to deliver the money to his captors. And then suddenly, the bomb explodes. At 3:18, when that device detonated, there was a collective "Oh my God!" After Wells' horrific death, investigators search his car, and what they discover seems to confirm the victim's account. Inside the vehicle, we found notes, and they were designated bomb hostage. These notes are step-by-step directions that Wells was to follow in order to prevent the bomb from going off. It was a scavenger hunt that Mr. Wells was sent on in order to receive keys to unlock the device that was strapped to his neck. This was a deadly game. When investigators follow the instructions on the notes, they reach a chilling conclusion. And we could have not finished that route in the time allotted. So we fully believe that device was destined to detonate. So who are the criminal masterminds behind this deadly bomb? Erie, Pennsylvania, 2003. Law enforcement officers are investigating a bizarre case of a man who robbed a bank with a bomb strapped to his neck. Soon after the heist. The bomb exploded, killing him instantly. So, who are the criminal masterminds behind this diabolical device? Two years later, after a series of tip-offs, investigators interview a drug dealer named Kenneth Barnes. Barnes claims that the roots of this elaborate heist go back to the spring of 2003, and a woman named Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Barnes says that Deal Armstrong, along with her ex-boyfriend. Handyman Bill Rothstein devised a daring scheme: create a hostage crisis in order to rob a bank. These people all thought they were smarter than everybody else; that they would devise a plan that would be so ingenious that nobody would ever figure it out. Barnes claims that Rothstein built a crude explosive device with a curious locking mechanism, and after luring Wells into their scheme with a promise of a share of the loot. They forced him to wear the bomb. The plotters had planned to collect the money shortly after Wells left the bank, but when they saw that the police had tracked him, they fled the scene. I think the co-conspirators never had any idea that the witnesses would be on the phone contacting the authorities so quickly, so that the transfer could never be made. And even though they provided instructions supposedly on how to defuse the bomb after the robbery, there was one thing Wells never knew: his death was part of the plan. This group of individuals never cared if Mr. Wells ever lived. 
As a result of the investigation, Deal Armstrong is sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. Bill Rothstein, however, died of natural causes in 2004, before the truth behind the case had come out. And today, this replica of the deadly color bomb is on display at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington, D.C., where it reminds visitors of one of America's most bizarre crimes. In the forested landscape of Elysburg, Pennsylvania, is a museum dedicated to the potent mineral buried beneath these rolling hills. Coal. The Anthracite Mining Museum chronicles this region's energy-rich past, with exhibits covering mining equipment and drilling technology. But according to museum president Dick Knoble, the most significant piece of mining history here is this unusual patchwork artifact. It is short sleeve, green in color, with the legs cut off, and attached is the webbing from a parachute harness. But this harness wasn't used by skydivers. So what role did this makeshift invention play in a subterranean tragedy that captivated the nation? August 13, 1963, Shepton, Pennsylvania. Three veteran miners, Dave Fellon, Hank Throne, and Louis Bova, are deep underground. They are independent contractors, harvesting a fresh source of coal in a mine once run by a big company. But after hours of blasting at the rock face, the support timbers suddenly begin to shake. Then the walls of the mine suddenly give way. It probably seemed like an avalanche, a whole ceiling coming down, and then they realized that they were trapped like rats in a hole. Within hours, news of the collapse spreads, and family members, rescue workers, and officials rush to the site. Fellow miner Ronnie Sando was on the scene that day. Department of Mines and all the engineers, when they looked at the situation, they were going to seal the mine and declare them dead. But the families of the trapped miners are convinced that their loved ones are still alive. They insisted, why don't you try drilling a borehole and see if you can hit the shaft? And people from the Department of Mines sat down and, well, they thought it was feasible. Let's try it. Using detailed maps of the Shepton mine and a fast six-inch drill, engineers bore into the rock in hopes of making contact with the miners. Six days after the collapse, the drill breaks through to what officials hope is the shaft where the miners were working. Desperate to discover the men's fate, rescue workers lower a radio microphone into the hole. One of the rescue engineers knelt down by the hole and he said, are you down there? And he repeated it. Are you down there? Have the miners survived this terrifying disaster? It's 1963 in Shepton, Pennsylvania. When a coal mine collapses, three miners are trapped nearly 330 feet below the Earth's surface. After drilling for days, rescue workers have finally reached the shaft where they were working. But are the miners alive? Family and friends wait with bated breath as rescue workers attempt to contact the lost miners. 
after calling down the borehole several times, but hello, hello, is anybody there? Anybody there? They did hear a faint who's calling from below. Incredibly, the miners who had once been given up for dead are still alive. And when that was related to the crowd, the crowd went ecstatic. Now the grateful miners receive food and water through the small hole. But the joyous mood is shattered when felon and throne share some ominous news. At the time of the collapse, Louis Bova was working separately, and when it collapsed, they couldn't hear from him anymore. Rescue workers begin drilling a new hole, large enough to extract the trapped men. Finally, after drilling for several days, the bit nears the cavity 330 feet beneath the Earth's surface. And all of a sudden, they start hollering. I can hear the drill. You are close. We slowed it down to a crawl. All of a sudden, he said, you're true. You broke through. But rescuers have a new problem. The narrow capsule they plan to use to hoist the men to the surface does not fit into the shallow, collapsed cavity. Now, crews must find a new way to extract the men. They said, why don't you get a parachute harness and lower that down and pull them up? Realizing that it will be difficult to strap into the harness in the darkness of the mine, rescuers develop an ingenious modification for the device. They stitched it fast to a pair of coveralls and figured, well, they can get in and know how to get in a pair of coveralls. In the early morning hours of August 27th, this strange contraption, now on display at the Anthracite Mining Museum, is lowered into the hole. Then, Hank Throne straps into the device and is slowly hoisted up the shaftway to the surface. Soon after, Dave Fellin follows. And when Dave was coming up, he was singing, she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. All the way up, he sang that song. As Felon emerges from the hole, the hills of Shepton, Pennsylvania echo with shouts of joy. But the celebration is short-lived. After repeated efforts to locate Louis Bova, the mine is sealed, and a simple monument is laid to the memory of the fallen miner. In the months that follow, investigators tried to determine what caused the collapse. After taking over the mine, Felon, Throne, and Bova were chipping away at the small deposits of coal left in the rock supports. It was a high-risk but legal practice known as robbing the pillars. The technique may have weakened the mine's internal supports and helped trigger the disastrous cave-in. As a result, federal and state legislators pass more stringent mine safety regulations designed to prevent future tragedies. Today, visitors to the Anthracite Mining Museum can marvel at the courage of the Shepton survivors and the ingenuity of their rescuers who developed this strange-looking harness that became their salvation. From frozen food to a failed heist, an ill-fated illusionist to an amazing rescue. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum.